0: neighbor you are listening to the new garden church podcast we're glad you're here this year we are walking through the whole bible together as a church family day by day and week by week we meet at 10 a.m at dupont tyler middle school in hermitage tennessee you can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at newgarden.church online we would love to hear from you we hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon Good morning, and welcome to week 43 in our series, Long Story Short. We're taking a whole year to read through the Bible, and let me tell you, the past 42 weeks have been worth the work, because now we get to see all the paths and the threads and the hints and the promises, prophecies converging and finding their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God, and no other book in the Bible explains this quite like the Gospel of John. Now at this point, we've read through Matthew and Mark, and next, after John, we'll read Luke. And anyone reading through the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will immediately notice their striking similarities. The three tell many of the same stories, sometimes with identical wording, and they follow the same basic storyline. Because of these similarities, these three are called the Synoptic Gospels. Now, synoptic is a fancy word that means a common perspective. And while 90% of Mark's stories either appear in Matthew or Luke, 90% of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, is unique. John is doing his own thing with a unique style and unique content. So if you line up John next to the other three, what are some of the key differences you might discover? First, you're gonna find differences in chronology and geographical movement. So in the Synoptics, remember that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first part of Jesus's public ministry occurs in Galilee, where Jesus teaches, heals, and repeatedly comes into conflict with the religious leaders. Jesus then makes his way south to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, where he challenges the religious leaders, is arrested, tried, crucified, and rises from the dead. Now, if we had the synoptics alone, we might think Jesus' ministry covered less than a year. By contrast, in John's Gospel, Jesus repeatedly goes to Jerusalem for various festivals. There are three Passovers in chapters two, six, and 11, and three other festivals in chapter five, 7, and 10. So that Jesus' ministry must have been anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years long. Now, besides chronology and geography, you're going to find differences in style and literary form. The Synoptic Gospels tend to be made up of short episodes known as pericopes, which is a Greek word that means a cutting out. They're a set of verses that form one coherent unit or a thought, and in the Synoptics, these pericopes are strung together rather loosely in a narrative sequence. For example, in Mark 2 through 3, we find a series of five episodes describing Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders. He Heals a paralyzed man, he calls Levi, he's questioned about fasting and then he has these two Sabbath controversies. So each of these is a pericope. It's kind of a semi-independent story that's linked together thematically. John's narrative style is very different. He tends to provide much longer episodes and discourses. Some of these are conversations between Jesus and an individual, like in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Others are miracle stories that are then followed by an extended back-and-forth debate between Jesus and his religious opponents. Um, In John, you're also going to find differences in Jesus' message and self-identification. In the Synoptics, Jesus' central message concerns the coming of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus' healings and exorcisms are meant to demonstrate its presence and power. People are called to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. In this way, they enter the kingdom and receive God's promised salvation. Jesus tells us parables of the kingdom to describe its nature. In John's gospel, by contracts, there are no parables or exorcisms. Jesus' teaching focuses much more on his own identity and his unique relationship with the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son who has come to reveal the Father. And salvation comes by knowing the Father through the Son. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. While in the Synoptics, salvation is primarily described as entrance into the kingdom. In John, it is focused on knowing God and eternal life with Him. In the Synoptics, Jesus' identity as Messiah is on center stage. Messiah means anointed one, and it refers to the promised King and Savior from the line of David who would save God's people from their enemies and establish God's kingdom. John's portrait of Jesus focuses less on his messiahship and more on his true humanity and true deity. He is the eternal son, the word, the logos of God, God's own self-revelation. Now, while these are significant differences, they represent complementary rather than contradictory portraits of Jesus. In John, Jesus is not only God in human form and the eternal son, He is also the Messiah and the Son of God. Similarly, in the Synoptics, Jesus is not only the Messiah, He's also the divine Son who reveals the Father. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God in John as well as in the synoptics. And in the synoptics, salvation is described not only as entrance into the kingdom, but also as eternal life. So the differences are a matter of emphasis rather than of substance. Now that we've pointed out some of the dissimilar ways that John is with the other three, how, about, how, how do we account for these differences? The likely answer is that John was written in a different context and a different time than the Synoptics, probably near the end of the first century. John is addressing issues of importance and concern for the Church of his day. When the Synoptics were written in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the burning issue for the Church was to show that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. How has the Kingdom of God arrived if Jesus was crucified and the Romans were still in power? The synoptics answer that the kingdom came in a different way than was expected, and that Jesus' messiahship was vindicated and confirmed through his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. John is writing somewhat later, when the church was confronting different challenges. False teachers have arisen in the church. Some are challenging the deity of Christ, claiming he's not fully God. Others are questioning his true humanity, denying that God could ever become a human being. And from his opening lines, John confirms both the full deity and the true humanity of Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So why did John write his gospel? Well, he gives us a clear purpose statement near the end of his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes to provoke faith in Jesus, resulting in eternal life. That you may believe could also be translated that you may continue to believe. John is likely writing both to call unbelievers to faith in Jesus and to provide confidence for those believers who are struggling in their faith. Their primary opponents are false teachers who have arisen in the church and are denying Jesus' deity or his true humanity. And also unbelieving Jews who have rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah and the self-revelation of God. John responds by demonstrating that Jesus confirmed through his teaching and his signs that he truly came from the Father to bring eternal life to all who believe. An examination of John's structure will help us illustrate how he develops this theme. John's gospel can be outlined simply into four parts. There's an introductory prologue, and then the main body consists of two parts, the book of signs, the book of glory, and then finally a concluding epilogue. Let's start with the prologue. John's magnificent prologue contains the most exalted description of Christ in the Bible. Jesus is identified as God's Word. This Greek word, logos, had a rich history both in Greco-Roman thought and in Judaism. In Greek philosophy, logos could refer to divine reason, the force that brings unity and order to the cosmos. In Judaism, God's Word represented the dynamic power of God to accomplish His will. God merely speaks the universe into existence with a word he can judge and destroy, redeem, and save. That Jesus is God's word means that he is God's agent of salvation and his self-revelation to human beings. The word, John says, was both with God, that is distinct from God the Father, and was God, that is fully God. The word's true deity is confirmed through his identification as the creator of all things. Though fully divine, Jesus entered human existence when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason for this incarnation was to bring people back into a right relationship with God to give them the right to become children of God by faith. John 1.18 forms that capstone to the prologue. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, who is Fully human and fully divine makes known the invisible God. Now, following the prologue, the first half of John's Gospel is often called the Book of Signs, since it recounts seven signs or miracles that Jesus performs. The miracles are called signs because they not only demonstrate Jesus's power, but they also point to who Jesus is and provoke faith in him. The signs are often linked in some way to Jesus's teaching. For example, Jesus feeds the multitude with loaves and a fish and then teaches that he is the true manna from heaven, the bread of life. The seven signs are when he turns water into wine, he heals a royal official's son, he heals a disabled man, he feeds the 5,000, he heals a man born blind, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he himself is resurrected from the dead. The first sign, turning water into wine at Cana of Galilee, illustrates their purpose. The miracle, occurring as it does at a wedding celebration, carries symbolic significance. In the Old Testament, God's salvation is described as a great party, the messianic banquet that God will throw for all people. You find the picture of this in Isaiah 25, where it will be a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest wines, symbolizing God's final salvation, where he will destroy the shroud of death that encovers all people, and he'll swallow up death forever. By turning water into wine, Jesus indicates that God's final salvation is arriving through His words and deeds. At the end of the episode, the author identifies this as the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory and His disciples believed in Him. The purpose of the sign is to reveal Jesus' glory and to provoke faith in Him. The The sixth sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, it has two important functions in the gospel. First, It is the precipitating event that provokes the religious leaders to act against Jesus. They recognize that if they let him go, everybody's gonna believe in him. So they decide they have to destroy him. And then also the miracle serves as a preview and a foreshadowing to the greatest sign of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Before raising Lazarus, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And Jesus' own resurrection will provide resurrection life to all who believe. The seven signs illustrate the importance of symbolism In John's Gospel. This use of symbols is also seen in seven metaphors or I am statements that Jesus uses to describe himself. The seven I am statements are, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and life, I am the way, truth, and life, I am the true vine. In addition to these seven, on at least one occasion Jesus identifies himself in an absolute sense as I am, an apparent allusion to the divine name Yahweh. So when the Jewish leaders sarcastically ask if Jesus is greater than Abraham, Jesus replies before Abraham was, I am. Now Jesus' use of this saying, I am, again, seems to be an allusion to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where Yahweh tells Moses that his divine name is, I am who I am. Jesus' opponents apparently understand this to be a claim to deity since they pick up stones and try to kill him. The second major section of John's Gospel, the Book of Glory in chapters 13-20, through 20, occurs during Jesus' last days in Jerusalem. It includes the Last Supper, during which Jesus washes the disciples' feet and predicts their denial and betrayal. And it includes Jesus' farewell address to His disciples, focusing on the promise of the Holy Spirit and the need to stay connected to Jesus as the vine, as uh, their branches. And it includes His prayer for Himself and His disciples, and it ends with His arrest trial and crucifixion and the resurrection narrative. This section is called the Book of Glory because of Jesus' saving work, his death, resurrection, and exaltation. It's repeatedly referred to as his glorification. It's called this because these events bring glory to God, restore the glory to the Son that He had before the Incarnation, and result in our glorification and salvation. And then finally, John's Gospel concludes with an epilogue, which appears to have been added after the author's death. Its purpose is to tie up all the loose ends. It includes another resurrection appearance and a miraculous catch of fish, the restoration of Peter after his denial of Jesus and the identification of the author as the disciple who Jesus loved. It's a character that appears throughout the rest of the story. Now, though the author is not named, church tradition identifies this beloved disciple with John the apostle, son of Zebedee, brother of James. This makes good sense since the gospel associates him with Peter as one of Jesus' closest disciples. Now we know from the synoptics that Peter, James, and John formed kind of an inner circle of disciples. And since James died at an early date, you can read that in Acts chapter 12, John remains the most likely candidate to write the gospel. Church tradition tells us that John went to Ephesus where he ministered for a number of years and it was there that he wrote his gospel and the letters that bear his name, first, second, and third John. And as the last of the surviving apostles, he viewed his role as standing firm for the truth against those who would deny it. He remained passionate to proclaim the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. And so I hope you make it your goal to read through the Gospel of John this week. And I pray the reason he wrote it becomes true in your life. That you may believe or continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode again next week.